Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, today's episode goes back a couple years ago when we talked to West Hansen, uh, the born and raised Texan who literally kayaked the Amazon River from source to sea. And when I, when I say source, I mean a trickle of water in the Andes Mountains where they walked for days because there was, you know, the the, the water they were following wasn't even big enough to paddle. Um, so it took miles and miles and miles, days, till they got to water big enough to paddle. And then it was thousands of miles to <laughs> the sea, which, I mean, the Amazon River, gosh, cr- crazy. Longest or second longest river in the world, depending on how you uh, define it uh, compared to the Nile. But very, very long expedition. And, and Wes has done things all over the world with National Geographic, um, has a crazy idea to paddle the Northwest Passage across the Canadian Arctic. Um, done a lot of cool things. This was a great episode. I really enjoyed it. Wes is a great storyteller. There's a documentary about uh, this experience. Uh, you can find that in the show notes as well as a book. So without further ado, uh, let's just go ahead and jump in. Where are you coming from today? Where's home for you? I'm in Austin, Texas. Okay. Is that is that where you're from? Uh, from League City, Texas, which is in between Houston and Galveston. But <clears throat> I went to college up here in the Hill Country at Southwest Texas State University. And after I met my wife uh, with my first post-baccalaureate uh, job, uh, we moved here to Austin. So we've been here since 1991. Before it got too expensive, actually, yeah. So we got here at a at a good time, and and we we got our roots pretty deep now. Awesome. Now, now, do you enjoy what Austin has become? I, I like it, but I didn't know what it was like before. You know, there are those uh, old timers like myself who bemoan, "Oh, it's not like it used to be." But you know, nothing's like it used to be, and and, and Austin is still pretty wonderful. Uh, we are fortunate to live in the middle of the city. So everything's walkable. We don't have to get on the interstate or the highway to do anything. It's uh, I like what they've been doing with the bicycle paths, which they're finally getting around to really um, putting some time and money and effort in so that we can bike around town easier. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I like it. And I'm okay with the changes because change is going to happen. And I think they're doing a smart job of it. Wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a pleasant place to go. Um, but like I said, I, I wasn't around, I didn't see it before all that, but, um, man, talk about, it's good for what you're doing, I guess, for, for Texas. I don't know if Texas has a lot of, uh, kayaking able rivers or anything, but it seems like there's at least some in, uh, Austin. Well, yeah. And, and also you got to realize that, uh, uh, flat water, Kayak racing is much more, <clears throat> excuse me, much more popular here, primarily because that's the kind of water we have. We don't really right, have right. extensive whitewater. I, I took a uh, whitewater kayaking course in college back in the early '80s, and we were fortunate then to have some floods that gave me some good river skills and knowledge and background. Uh, but then, in the '90s, I quickly moved over to ultra marathon canoe and kayak racing just because that's what we have long rivers with with very little white water so we're we've got a great ultra marathon community here that's awesome and and now what have you always been into that you said since college uh have you just been on the water your whole life and, and why um why the ultra long distance stuff and do you do stuff on land too or do you kind of just stick to water 
Well, in college, um, I started marathon running uh, just on my own, okay. but I also took a course in whitewater kayaking. So, you know, while I grew up on the coast in Texas, uh, I really wasn't that much that water based. I didn't do a lot of paddling until college. And then I got into the whitewater scene, what there was of it here in Texas uh, in the 80s. But as I mentioned, I probably only did that about eight years before before moving off into the flat water. Uh, and I've been doing that since 91. And recently I started training again for marathons because my recognized that my, my shoulders are really taking a beating and I don't have any balance. So I'm trying to get my legs back in shape. And currently I'm up to about 13 miles and uh, hopefully by December I'll be able to run a marathon again. Very cool. Yeah. Them, them legs have been resting for a while, huh? Very atrophied. And it, it really, you know, really creeps up on you. And, and so I've, I've had to start pretty slowly so I don't injure my, my legs getting back into it. Oh, absolutely, man. That's, uh, it's amazing how, you know, the bodies, you can just look at somebody and say, wow, you've been doing a lot of this for a long time. I know I, I'm come from the cycling world and we're notorious for not having very strong upper bodies. Cause you know, your arms right, just kind of right. sit there all day. <clears throat> yeah. I could wrestle Lance Armstrong to the ground with a one hand tied behind my back probably, but, uh, <laughs> sure but that, that's, that's about the size of it. <clears throat> and, and, uh, subsequently that's where all the injuries happen also that's what we use so i've had you know four shoulder surgeries one neck surgery uh all due to you know ultra endurance paddling no i mean i guess it all comes at a cost but i'm sure you wouldn't trade any of those experiences uh for any of the pain it's caused <laughs> fortunately the, the it's more been more discomfort than pain and i certainly wouldn't trade them trade one minute of it that's for sure that is awesome and so, so, you know, I, I know you've done some races in the Austin area. Is that kind of how you got into the, the long distance kayaking and water sports? And then when did you start from there? Where did it build till you started doing expeditions? Well, I started doing my first ultra marathon canoe race was in 92, 1992. And I did the Texas water safari, which is our our backyard race here. It's a 260 mile race that goes from the Texas Hill Country down to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, it's nonstop. Uh, at the time, it was uh, unsupported. You could only get water from one designated person, but you had to take all your own food. And I did that every year um, for several years. Uh, I've skipped a few years because of surgeries and expeditions now uh, until I finally completed my 20th this, this year. And uh, that is a really strong and entrenched culture here. So we obviously spend a lot of time on the water because the only way to really train to paddle nonstop 260 or 340 miles in the case of the Missouri River 340 is to get out there and do lots of river miles. And so that's the crowd we hung out with is, is the people that were out, okay, let's go power paddle 10 hours today nonstop. <laughs> and so that I, I kind of peaked with my wins and my record setting in the early part of the century in my forties. And it was at that time that I had a friend of mine, David Kelly, invite me to go race in Peru and the great river Amazon raft race, which is a race where upon you build a raft out of balsa logs 
eight balsa logs that are about wow. 16 feet long a piece. Yeah, these trees. They, and, and you can pick up a log easily because it's, you know, it's balsa. And then you race it in a stage race over 90 miles of three, three days over 90 miles. And, and so I was 46 years old at that time. I'm 57 now. And that was my first time to leave the country. I'd never been out of the United States. I'd never had a passport. It just never occurred to me. You know, Texas is a very insular state and, and culture. A lot of people oh, don't it's seem bigger than a lot of countries, so it's probably hard to get out sometimes. <laughs> well, exactly, and and it's not people aren't necessarily bred to say, "Hey, you need to leave." No, it's just the opposite. It's like, why would you leave? Why we have tacos, we have barbecue, we have women. I mean, it's it's the best thing <laughs> in the world. So, <laughs> anyway, I went down there and I fell in love with the Amazon River over the two weeks that we spent down there, and and right after that, I read Running the Amazon by Joe Kane, which was this iconic expedition book, and immediately figured I was going to do it. Wow, so, it just immediately upon it, well, reading the book. It, it was, it's, it's a lot more concrete than that. I was reading the book between on a flight between San Francisco and Austin when I was coming back from Peru, and I had a three-hour layover in Phoenix. It was during those three hours that I read the entire book, drank about four or five Jack and Cokes, and when by the time I got on my next plane, I knew I was going to paddle the Amazon. A life-changing flight then. Jeez. Yeah. And I started planning it from then on out. And uh, it, was just a, it was just a matter of fact. So after making that decision, what were some of your concerns going into it? There were several. Yeah, there were several. And they, 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 they changed in priority depending on where I was, A, in the planning, and B, during the expedition. Uh, you know, raising the funds because I wanted to fund the entire expedition for everybody that was going down there. And that's what I did. Uh, uh, some of the guys made their own way down there, like on the whitewater team, I wasn't able to pay for all their tickets. Uh, but once they were there, I, I paid for all their hotels and their food and everything. And, and I, and I got the kayaks from, from Jackson kayaks. They were wonderful sponsors and we had those shipped down there. Uh, and then the whitewater, I mean the flatwater kayak from Epic and Valley sea kayaks. So I didn't want anybody to have to pay any money. I saw from other expeditions, that's where things restrained, uh, when someone couldn't come up with money and then they felt beholden to other people. So raising the money was a big deal. So I scraped and did that, uh, got sponsors, probably too many sponsors, too many gear sponsors, but it was my first expedition. But once we got feet on the ground, the whitewater turned out to be, uh, uh, much more treacherous, and that combined with the you know almost fifteen thousand feet of elevation in the Andes, we had altitude sickness and just you know poor energy levels. So, you know, early on, those were the problems we had to overcome. But that's what we did. We just we just overcame them. And then further down, when we got down to the the uh, the cloud forest, that's one of the cocaine regions in the Sendera Luminosa in Brazil. I mean, excuse me, Sendera Luminosa in Peru were prevalent. And so we had to, uh, you know, make sure we had permission to go through these, these dangerous areas of the jungle, permission from the narco traffickers. Uh, so we did that. Once things settled down and became less dangerous around us, that's when I really started missing my family. You had time to think about them at that point. Yeah, exactly. Just, you know, 14 hours a day of endless paddling and my wife and daughter were, you know, thousands of miles away. And, you know, it's one thing when you don't have a moment to think about them, you know, when you're battling whitewater or gun-wielding locals. Um, then 
you know, missing the family is, is a horrible thing. You know, so that was really rough. How often were you able to talk to him? Well, I could have called him every day because we had satellite phones. Um, and I did that fairly early on. Uh, but that made things worse because then you hear about, you know, from my wife and daughter, what they did on a daily basis. My daughter was in school in junior high at the time. And, you know, they're talking about, you know, the cat throwing up and mowing the lawn and, and homework. And, and here I was, you know, <laughs> trying to dodge pirates on the <laughs> Ukiyali River. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't tell them any of that. I couldn't tell them that. No, none of us mentioned any of that stuff when it happened because we didn't want to alert our, our family of the dangers we were going through. So we only let them know that, you know, a month later. So I'm sure they weren't happy about that. Well, they understood. And we did let people know that needed to know. In fact, we had help from the Peruvian military. They they uh, escorted us through some pretty, pretty bad areas. And of course, we let our, our PR guy, David Kelly, after he left the support uh, section of the, the river where he was there for the whitewater, he was the confidant. He knew everything. He knew all the, the politics with National Geographic, with with Rocky, the guy that, you know, the, discovered the new headwaters of the Amazon. There was a lot of, there, there was a lot of dissension in politics going on and a lot of subterfuge. And so David was, was privy to all of that. So how'd you go into it with all the planning and, you know, what was your mindset going into all this? Well, you know, fairly bright eyed and naive. I mean, I, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I thought the best of everybody and, 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 and then it turned out that there were some, some people with hidden agendas, uh, that were, that weren't necessarily on the river with us, but, you know, had, had helped us, you know, set up uh, with, with uh, you know, some of the administrative support and some of the logistics and things like this. And, and I spell that out a little more deeply into the book, but that was a bit of a, a surprise. And, and, and for instance, at one point, um, managerially, I was always counting pennies. You know, I had a, a load of cash with us that we kept somewhat hidden because you can't, you know, exactly take your visa out when you're in a village on the Amazon. And so I was watching all the money we were spending and so forth. Well, and it quickly turned out that we were going to run out of money. You know, we had a budget of, oh, I think $80,000 and that wasn't going to be near enough. Um, and so I appealed for some more money with National Ge Geographic uh, above and beyond the grant that we were given. And they wanted to, to see all of our receipts in an audit. Uh, before they would even consider it. And I explained to him, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm kayaking the Amazon right now, or, you know, I, <laughs> this is going to be a little difficult oh to pull together right this minute. <laughs> and so that was a, that was a funny moment on a sat phone from thousands of miles from Washington, DC. That was a, Hey, would you mind uh, putting together a spreadsheet for us on a proposal? <laughs> <laughs> no biggie. I'll get, I'll get right on that. I'll get <laughs> Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You know, and speaking of National Geographic and all that, I, I know there's kind of a, a debate around the, the headwaters of both the Nile and the Amazon River. And, you know, typically that wouldn't be a huge deal, but 
depending on how you define those, uh, it makes one of those two rivers the longest river in the world. Um, you obviously hold that the Amazon is the longest river in the world because of a newfound headwaters. Could you, could you talk about that a little bit and like what led you to, I believe that changed some plans for you after you started planning the trip, correct? It goes a little further than that. So here, here's the course of events. Uh, back in the 19, early 1970s, Lauren McIntyre was on assignment from National Geographic. He had specialized in the Amazon River and the Amazon region and had done a lot of coverage down there for them since, uh, I guess he was in the military there in the 1950s. And so in the early 1970s, he a Peruvian geographic uh, expedition to look for the headwaters of the Amazon. And, and he using fairly unscientific methods, uh, determined that it was at the headwaters of the Corsante Creek on the Apurimac, Rio, Rio Apurimac watershed, the Apurimac River, which is in southern Peru. Uh, flows pretty close to, to Cusco, if people are familiar with that area. But it goes further further west towards the uh, Pacific uh, in the Andes. Well, that, that was a popularly held belief for several years. And... But no one had really compared it to other rivers. They just kind of hiked up what they thought was the longest river and planted a flag and said that was it. Well, and then then they uh, running the Amazon expedition was in the 1980s, and they hiked up to that one and 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 uh, uh, actually you could drive up to it. And then they they paddled down to the Atlantic and said, okay, we were the first to go from the most distant source of the Amazon, uh, and that. That wasn't really held into contention until Lauren McIntyre questioned it himself in 1992 in an article in a in a very obscure journal. And Lauren McIntyre said, "You know what? I'm not really sure this is where the actual headwaters of the Amazon are located, the most distant source." And he named this other place at the Montaro River, at the uh, head of the Montaro, and unbeknownst. Rocky Contost was uh, had had a plan to kayak all five of the main tributaries of the Amazon in Peru, and while he was doing that, he discovered that Lauren McIntyre's theory was actually true. Now, Rocky didn't know about Lauren's theory because the magazine that Lauren published this in was very obscure. So, inadvertently, Rocky Contost proved Lauren McIntyre's theory correct, and he contacted me. And said, "Hey, I, I think they misplaced the start of the Amazon. So when you do your expedition, uh, you, you might want to start it somewhere, you know, this other place. Well, it's 500 miles north of where the previous headwaters was believed to be. So it's not just a matter of walking further into the mountains. It's a 500 mile drive, or you take a plane. I mean, you, you're not going to get there in a day. And and um, high into the Andes. This is more in middle Peru versus." Uh, southern Peru, and in the um, uh, the headwaters of the Montaro River are near Lago Junin, which is actually the tallest lake in the world. Uh, Titicaca is the second. It's Titicaca is the tallest nav- navigable lake in the world, but Lago Junin is is the tallest, highest lake in the world. So he said, "You can." Rocky said, "You can start there. You know, if you you know if if you don't change your your uh, expedition." without talking to me first. And then also if, uh, let's see, what else did he say? And if you keep it a secret so I can announce it. And I said, sure. Um, he went to National Geographic and got a grant to search the, for the new headwaters. And I got a grant to, uh, uh, to, to paddle from the new headwaters, two different grants. 
And then he was doing his research and I was doing my paddle. And, and, and at this point, uh, you know, the, the guy that had done the expedition from the uh, Tormac, who was featured in Joe Kane's running the Amazon, he came on board on our, on our team. And he was, he was part of this team as well. And so he went down there with Rocky and they found where the, the new headwaters were. And then a few months later we went down there and he showed us where the headwaters were located and we left from there. Well, that's when everything kind of started blowing up because then I discovered only after the fact that there's no real way to define what is the source of a river or even the mouth of the river. There's no, geogra- there's no geographic definition. Um, a lot of people will say the source of a river is a lake. And you'll, when, in the movie Mountains of a Moon, when Sir Richard Burton and, and Speak were looking for the headwaters of the Nile, they got to the Lake Victoria, and Burton said, here we are, the headwaters of the Nile. And Speak said, no, it's going to be actually a lake, uh, a stream that spills in and makes this lake. And they started a controversy then. This was in the late 1800s. So this is not a new issue. There currently is no universally held definition of what constitutes the river. And that's what we ran, in, that's what we ran into on our expedition. And so... Uh, in my book, and, and what Rocky Contos did in his his journal, finally that he published, was he proposed a universal definition that all rivers could could use. And the controversy is still out there. <laughs> and I spell it out, I spell it out in my book and also on my w- website westhanson.com. But it has since led to a, a lot of controversy in the expedition community. I want to be able to say this is the longest river in the world, but you have to uh, judge them by the same parameters. You can't say, you know, you know this this river is two million cubits long. Well, this river is five million feet long, so it's longer. You know, you have to use the same units of measurement and same definitions for the start. So using the same definitions, uh, which is like uh, the, the, the most universal definition is from where uh, the longest distance from where a raindrop or any drop of water could travel to get to the ocean. And that is the purest definition. It's just the raindrop. It's the simplest uh Simplest thing you can come from, because so, then you don't rely upon a spring or a lake or, or snow melt that may or may not happen or a glacier that may or may not exist. You have to have a component that every river shares. And the only thing that every river shares is water. So, you know, is there someone out there, an organization that can basically answer this question for us rather than, you know, a bunch of people having their own definitions? There you go. That's the big question. There, there's, there's no one, there's no one stepping forward. There's no authority stepping forward to say that. Uh, in my book, the Amazon from Source to Sea, which comes out today, uh, I lay out a proposal that's based upon what Rocky Contos first proposed, and that is exactly what I said: the farthest distance that a raindrop can travel uh, from land to the ocean from anywhere on land to the ocean. It has nothing to do with elevation or anything like that. And so when we say that, when you use that simple definition as opposed to a lake or or whether the river dries up for part of the year or not or anything to this nature, then the Montaro River is is the most distant source of the Amazon. Same with uh, Burundi for uh, the Nile. There's the swamp in Burundi that fits that description as well and makes the Nile even longer. Not not longer than the Amazon, but longer than any other source. 
Yeah, there's there's a lot uh, at stake with answering that question for sure. So I'm sure somebody's nervous about doing it. Um, and, and you know what's crazy? I was looking up the longest rivers in the world. You know, a, a lot of the longest, like the top four longest rivers, are um, pretty r- decently close in size. Like by a few hundred miles, it's kind of amazing how that's just kind of happened. Right. Uh, well, the Nile and the Amazon really are the only ones that are as close because when you get down to the other seven on the seven continents, the Yangtze and the 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 uh, the Volga, the Onyx in Antarctica, the Murray Darling in Australia, they're they're far shorter than either the Nile or the Amazon. Mm, okay. Okay. So, so yeah, you know, you you've decided to start the journey at that spot that's 500 miles north uh, can you can just paint a picture for us for for what it looked like uh way up there high elevation at the beginning of the amazon what what was it like for you and, and just describe that for us where you started the journey it's where we went and we actually and and, and you know just to lay it out there i didn't leave from the most distant source our expedition was four miles short of the most distant source well dang it I'm just playing. <laughs> That's okay. We, we we still had a great trip, but afterwards, Rocky and he he still had some more research to do, and he discovered that there was a separate stream than the one we went down. The Rio Blanco is the most distant source, whereas the stream right next to it, the Rio Gashan, is the one uh, from down which we traveled. So we were four miles short of the longest. Do you regret not doing that? Not not at all. In fact, it's still there. I may go down and do it. But uh, it's still out there. No, no, we, we, uh, uh, there, there are no regrets, I assure you. So what it looks like, we left from Lago Acucocha, which is a little over 14,000 feet uh, in the Andes. They're, we're well above the tree line. Uh, the air is, is crystal clear. The water is, is the cleanest you've ever seen in your life. There's no industry, obviously, up there. I mean, there are some mines further down, but right there at the headwaters, you're just surrounded by these snowy peaks these jagged snowy peaks of the andes even in the summer and the weather changes constantly we within a two-day span we were in whiteout conditions but we were also in t-shirt sunny conditions there are there are just beautiful serene llamas and, and alpacas walking around in herds uh nibbling on the ichu grass which is crunchy under your feet um, occasionally the wind just blows like crazy through there. Sometimes it's just crystal quiet and you can, you can, you can hear every breath. Everybody around you is, is, is breathing. Um, the, you know, the best I could describe is just serene. You can see storms coming from far away because you're so high up and there's this uh, huge valley between the two, the two, uh, rims of the Andes. Um, Dirt roads going here and there, villages with uh, adobe buildings, uh, Quechua people, you know, just going about their lives. Uh, it's it's a really beautiful, magical place. How soon could you get the uh, the kayaks in the water? Um, well, we actually paddled across Lago Acacocho, which is about a three mile paddle. We said, okay, well this is the source. There's water here and there's no water above it. So let's start here. And this is well before I'd done any research into what, you know, anything about the source issue of rivers. I'd, I'd taken Piotr Mlevinsky's uh, word saying, this is the source. And I said, all right, sounds good enough to me. Let's go. 
So we turned around and went. And we paddled immediately. The Rio Gachon is a rocky little stream, but we put in whitewater kayaks and we kind of knuckle dragged uh, for 20 miles through there until the water got deep enough to actually paddle. So that took about a day and a half uh, to just shove our way through this the shallow water. Sometimes it was only ankle deep. But then when we got closer to Lago Hunin, where the actual real Montaro proper starts, there's there's plenty of water and plenty of white water at that point. Uh, so I imagine, you know, the paddling up to, in the Andes was a lot different than the majority of the trip, which was in, you know, kind of the more traditional Amazon, the big, muddy-looking river. Once we got through the Andes, it took us about 500 miles to get through the Andes. And then we switched from our whitewater team. We called them the Tigers. And, and that was led by uh, Juanito uh, de Ogarte. Uh, and the Tigers included uh, international whitewater uh, phenoms, these famous guys, Rafa Ortiz, Tino Specht, and Simone Yerovi. Uh, very international team, very accomplished of these guys that go over waterfalls all the time. Uh, after we finished with them on the upper, and we also had uh, Santiago Ibanez on, on the lower uh, part of that 500 miles and Daniel Rondon. And um, uh, we came to the flat water, which is where the Apurimac and the Montero get together. And this was the cloud force. So we were still, you know, in the mountains per se, but they were now green. And it didn't really open up, but it, but it did speed up. Uh, after another couple of weeks then it started getting wide when we got down to the ukiyale river and got fast uh but there were no rapids it was just this big fast water and it steadily got bigger and bigger by the time we got into brazil a couple of thousand miles later it was five to ten miles across at places and uh and 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 moving fast i mean you think of that as a lake but it's actually moving quickly you can stop paddling and measure it on your gps your speed sometimes three or four knots wow that is surprising I, I, and, and you couldn't really tell if you're five you know if you're two or three miles from shore trying to find the right flow you can't tell you're moving until you look at your gps because there's nothing to to compare it to wow, that is crazy so, so how many people you mentioned you know paying for the expedition and paying for everyone on how, how many people were there on this trip and, and did that change over the course of the trip well, we started with about uh, 17 people because uh, we had, you know, my wife and daughter were there for the first month to help out. And, and then we had a huge support team on the whitewater section because we were just hopping from one place to another. And I didn't know what to expect. So I just threw everybody at it that I could. By the time we got down to the flatwater section, we were down to, we switched boats over to sea kayaks. And we had, we had uh, five paddlers, two tandem kayaks and and i was in a solo kayak and then we at that point we had with five paddlers then we had a photographer from national geographic eric schlegel who's a friend of mine uh jason jones who was a marine with jungle training who was part of our support and then cesar pena from iquitos who knew all the local languages as well as uh really great english and german so those guys stayed with us down to iquitos and then Two of the guys in the kayaks left us at Iquitos, and it got down to just three of us, and and then two support guys. And then the two support guys left us when we got to the Brazilian border. So the final, um, about 2,300 miles, 2,500 miles, it was just three of us with no support. Wow. Now, is that how you kind of wanted it to go, or do you wish it would have been different? 
Yeah, no, it would have been great to have a boat follow. <laughs> have yeah, give us imagine. food and stuff. In fact, uh, you interviewed Darcy Geckner uh, a little while ago. I heard your interview with her. She was the first woman to do the Amazon. She did it about a year after we did. And and uh, I was on her support team in the Whitewater. And uh, their, their team had uh, a yacht that followed them from well into Peru all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. And I, and every day they'd stop and pull over and they'd sleep on the yacht and they'd get, you know, supper and maybe pen and oh, this wonderful stuff. And I thought, man, that is definitely the way to go. I would love to have had something like that. For the last 10 days, we had to hire a boat uh, with a gunman on it because we were going through some very high, you know, heavy pirate areas. And so we slept on top on the roof of that boat during that time. And, and we, they carried our food for us and water. So that was, that was nice. The last 10 days. Well, actually, the, um, the, we had 13 days to go, and they weren't with us the last three days. So 10 of the last 13 days, we had a boat with us. And you were dealing with um, a lot of pirates and cartels and stuff like that, correct? As you got further into the Amazon? Yeah, and and as you get further into Brazil, there are more places for them to, them to hide. The, the little little channels of water that fan out. They're called igarapes, and which translates uh, port from Portuguese straight into pathways. And these thin little pathways just kind of disappear into the for into the jungle, and a, a small motorboat can disappear in there, and you'll never find them. So they they dash out of there, they rob you, they shoot you, they kill you. They do whatever they can do, then they they dash back in before the authorities can find them and disappear into the into the jungle. So it's 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 a pretty dangerous area. Jeez. And now you, you know, you've talked about this before, so I don't mind bringing it up. You were held at gunpoint, um, I think five times, right? Right. Five times in total, yeah. Wow. So, so, uh, you know, was every experience similar? Did you feel different about each one? I mean, are all held at gunpoint experiences created equal? <laughs> and what was, what was that like? It was very surreal. I've been around, you know, we're from Texas, so we've been around guns a lot. And, you know, it didn't, the first time we were held at gunpoint was in that cloud force uh, I referred to earlier. And it was just us five kayakers. Our support boat was still a day behind us. And the, it was some locals. And we immediately realized that they had single shot 20 gauge shotguns that were pretty ancient. And there were five of them. And we all kind of, <laughs> and they didn't speak very good Spanish. Uh, they spoke um, uh, kind of a weird dialect, but it was uh, it was a local. I'm not sure if it was Ashkenazi, but it was uh, or Ashkeninka, uh, but it wasn't Quechua. I knew that because we we're starting to learn a little Quechua by then. But the the bottom line was we couldn't communicate very well with them. And they were, I mean, it's not like they were in native clothing; they were in soccer clothes. And they came down to the the river where we were. Clean, filtering some water just during a break and, and held us at gunpoint and searched our stuff. They were worried that we were there to harm them. And we picked up on that pretty quickly. They, they didn't want to shoot us and, and they were standing way too close to us. So we always thought, well, we can just grab their guns and just beat the crap out of them if we wanted to. But yeah, they are shotguns. They're not going to get all of us. And But you know that's not why we were there. And we, we did not want to be a threat to these people. They had already been persecuted so much by outsiders that we didn't want to become one of those people. And, and so we let them search our stuff and then they let us go. Uh, and then after that, two times we were held at gunpoint by the Rondero, which are the police force, uh, 
private police force of the narco traffickers to keep law and order in the narco traffic area so they can conduct their their business. And so long as we were not part of the police or the any kind of law enforcement, then we were safe to pass through their their cocaine producing area. And they they figured that out pretty wow, yeah really? they they well they want law and order they don't want people you know murdering and stealing stuff they've got business to do wow the cartels keeping law and order that is nuts you got it and then we weren't held at gunpoint again until we we're well within Brazil and then the fourth time I was actually pretty nervous I was worrying worried that we'd get shot by accident because there was these five uh, teenage punks and they had various you know, crappy firearms and they were nervous and they were shaking. And I thought, Oh no, these idiots are going to shoot us, you know, by accident. And those I was a little concerned about just cause they were inexperienced. The rest, it was business. This was, they were just holding us up to find drugs and you know, we didn't have any. The, the final time was a vigilante group who were looking out for narco traffickers and they quickly, knew that we were okay. And, and after questioning us for a little bit, they let us go. They didn't search anything. I mean, we had national geographic flags on our kayaks. So these guys were a little bit more on the ball and they saw that, yeah, you don't transport drugs by kayaks. So they let us go. But the attitude was, you know, other than the fourth time with those punks, it wasn't that big a deal because it was, we knew what they wanted or what they didn't want. And, and it was just business and, once they weren't pointing the guns at us, I felt, okay, we could talk to these guys, you know, but you got to get past the whole gun pointing thing. They, we only got shot at once. And, and that was, um, our photographer was, was given a warning shot over the bow and, and, uh, he didn't care for that much. Uh, different kind of shooting than he's used to, huh? Well, yeah, he, he hit the deck pretty good, but the Marine that was with him, Jason took it pretty personally. And he, he found the guys two nights later in a bar on the Amazon and man, he had enough beer in him that he was going to take all of them on. And he, I think he could have taken out a lot of them, but luckily he had the mayor of the town and, and the photographer holding him back. And <laughs> it was a wild time. I, I got I to tell you, <laughs> you need to read the book. <laughs> Jeez, man. Now, now would you say that was the most dangerous part of this journey or, or was there something else? Oh, gosh. Um, really hard to rate. I mean, we went under this thing called the water cannon, Juanito de Ugarte. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I saw this video of this, like, this water just spilling out from the side of this mountain, and it looked looked pretty dangerous, but it also looked man-made. Yeah, what, what was that about? Well, yeah, this happened one day after the other, these two incidences. The first was this water cannon where it's a spillway that goes, it's a tunnel drilled 20 miles through the Andes, and... The water is is forced in there from upriver on the Montaro boat turns the tunnel, which is very ingenious. But then it's it's got to go somewhere, so it shoots out the other side of the Andes, and we had to paddle under this thing. Just tons and tons of water coming on us, and we almost got sucked into it. Uh, and so that was you know that was an eye opener. And then the next day, we paddled down to a place where they're the they're building a new dam called the Rio uh, the Rio Aguila Dam or something like that. I don't even think they have a name for it yet, but they were blowing up both sides of the canyon as we were going through the kayaking through there. And, and, um, so these huge boulders were raining down on us and, and we got on the walkie talkie and, and Juanito got on the walkie talkie and asked them to please stop setting off their dynamite charges. 
but they, those came close to hitting us. And well, they did pelt our helmets, uh, but none of the larger, you know, refrigerator sized boulders hit us, but they were, they were pretty close. That was, that was kind of scary. The river at that point on the Montaro was only about 20 feet wide. So there wasn't a whole lot of places for us to hide. So that, yeah, that was tense. <laughs> Just with all the inherent dangers of, you know, a, a river, it's so crazy to me that it's the man-made things that, that cause so much issue for you. You know, the, the tunnel that's spewing water, the dynamite, the cartels, et cetera. Right, <laughs> exactly. It was the, the, the dynamite that, that's, that'll always slow you down. Um, but there are other tense times. I had to deal with the uh, customs officials in Iquitos, which is another couple of hundred miles before you get to the Brazilian border. But they wanted a lot of money just for me to paddle my kayaks out of their country that I'd already paid several thousand dollars for. So there's a big shakedown there. And, and we had the military on our side, but I, my, my temper grew a little short at a few times. And luckily, my, our photographer and, and the, the military attache that we had with us, you know, held me back <laughs> when I got a little overzealous towards some customs officials. So, uh, the, you know, there's always alcohol involved in these things. <laughs> Oof, yeah, that, that probably created some more problems than, uh, than expected. <laughs> for, uh, specifically for medicinal reasons only. And the final, the final tense moment happened at the end. We, uh, we didn't have any support after uh, Belém. Belém is about is in Brazil near the Atlantic Ocean, and it's about seventy five miles from the mouth of the uh, Amazon, where the Amazon actually meets the Atlantic Ocean. And so we didn't have any support after that, so we paddled nonstop for forty some odd hours uh, with and against the tide, day and night, to get to the Atlantic. And the tides at at the mouth of the Amazon are just horrendous. And we pulled, finally pulled over after about 24 hours and we camped on top of this sandbar about 12 feet above the water. Well, this was about seven o'clock at night and we fell asleep in our, in our tents and woke up to water coming into the tents two hours later. So in a span of two hours, the river at that point is 90 miles wide. 90 miles it's a flowing river and it's it's not a bay it is unmistakably a river and we woke up to water coming into our tents uh had risen 12 feet in two hours and we packed we just threw everything into our cockpits real quickly into our sea kayaks and we had 12 miles to go at that point to get to the atlantic to a point that we had we had uh we had made out on our gps and we we couldn't see land around for miles because it was dark and there's there's no civil you know, there's no houses or anything out there. It's all mangrove swamps. There's no roads. There's, there's nothing. And so we said, well, let's just paddle now and finish this thing out. We only have 12 minutes, I mean, 12 miles. So it took us six hours to paddle against these huge waves that kept getting bigger and bigger as we got closer to the Atlantic. And at one point, right towards the end, the waves were in between 20 and 30 feet high coming at us. And we were so afraid that they would crest. They were these giant steep rollers. And the only way we could see them coming is that the stars and we, oh, we just saw this, these, mount, these mountains of blackness coming at us. So we'd race up to the top just so we wouldn't slide back down and then slam down over the top and race down to the bottom and dive in and just to do it again uh, up the other side. And I just kept staring at my GPS and we just kept paddling against these 
these mountains of water to to get to the Atlantic. And finally, we hit it and paddled a few hundred more yards just to make sure, and then turned around and hightailed it to the nearest spit of land we could find. And and then what? Did you have anything set that, up to? Oh, go ahead. Oh no, no, that was about three in the morning, and so we kind of crash landed into this beach and set up our tent. We had to, we dragged a couple hundred yards up up the the beach because you know we didn't know what the tide was going to do you know from what happened earlier that night and so we just fell in the tents and 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 woke sunshine the next morning and we had to paddle back into land you know another 25 miles to the nearest town so that was a little depressing and then so we started paddling and after about five miles we found a fishing boat and and we went and begged them for a ride and we gave them all the money we had which is about 25 reals, the Brazilian reals, and, and gave them all of our peanut M&Ms that we had left. And they were so nice. <laughs> they were so sweet to us. They were just, they were gentlemen. And, and um, I got their pictures and they shared their fish with us and we ate and they, they, they took us in with their powerboat two hours to the nearest town, which was great. And we were able to catch a ride there uh, uh, back towards Belém, to Mosquero actually. And the journey was complete. Well, other than getting back home and probably getting all your stuff, probably still had a lot of work to do. Yeah, but you're right. It was complete. It it was, uh, then, then the hard part was getting used to getting back to civilization after being gone for 111 days. So that was, uh, that was a bit difficult. Yeah. How, how was that for you? Because we actually, I love to ask that question and you know, the, the answers vary greatly. So what was your experience? I'm not sure I've gotten back over it yet. I mean, it's been seven years <laughs> and, and, and uh, I keep getting drawn back. You know, we did the Volga two years later in, uh, in Russia. That's Europe's longest river. We were the first to kayak source to see the Volga. And I'm still drawn back. It's, it's Jeff Wiesty, who is, has been on all my expeditions, or the, all two of them so far. He's, he's an old friend, known for almost 30 years, and racing buddy. And he put it really well when he said that, you know, what we're experiencing after a couple of months out of there, what we settled into was moving at a, a natural pace, a pace of that, that we were evolved to, to go, uh, the, the speed of the river, the speed that we can just paddle ourselves. And we can take in with our senses things as we should, nothing too fast, nothing, you know, 80 miles an hour or uh, communication across the world you know, within milliseconds and, and, you know, constant input from everywhere. Well, you know, when you, when you're traveling at a natural pace, you can really take in a lot more because it's not coming at you. You're not trying to drink from a fire hydrant and, you know, you can sip the world at a leisurely pace and it's just a wonderful experience. I got to tell you. So getting used to the world again has been difficult. I'm, I'm, I, I really become less tolerant of people whining about whether their soy latte is <laughs> half calf or half decaf and, and, you know, people complaining about how horrible things are, you know, in this incredible Disneyland in which we live when there are people along the Amazon that are very happy, you know, to have a plate of food and, 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 you know, not so dirty water. I mean, we can, we can all go into our houses and use a restroom and, and it goes away from our house. The sewage leaves our house. That alone is cause for celebration. <laughs> it's amazing. It really is. So I've come to really appreciate those things. And the other side of that coin is I've 
I have to bite my tongue a lot when I hear people complaining about how hard they have it here in North America. Gosh, man, we could just, I'm, I'm sure it's just unbelievable when we start to think about everything we do have that's so wonderful. And it is, that is one of the most amazing byproducts of adventure and expeditions is how much you do appreciate, you know, just little things, just the smallest thing, like a hot cup of coffee or clean water or a shower. Uh, is it, what would you say? That was really interesting. What you said, your, your friend Jeff said about you know living at a natural pace while you're on a river. You know, it's it's kind of the way nature intended because it's the way nature it's the it's the speed nature's going along the river. How do you think you transition that back into normal life? What are what does that look like to be at a natural pace back home? Maybe you haven't figured it out yet, but maybe you have some ideas of of what it looks like. I. I've come to a somewhat of a detente in that I prefer the company of others less, and I'm a little more particular about who I spend time with. And, and I know that sounds kind of standoffish, but it, I hope the people with whom I spend time realize that. And, and uh, I really value those people, and I don't have a lot of room for manipulation more time alone now. I've discovered I like writing, so I've got a couple other books. Um, and so I guess that's the best way I've, I've coped with it, plus then planning more expeditions. So, you know, I'm looking forward to going to the Northwest Passage in 2020 with uh, Jeff Wiesty and Jimmy Harvey. We're, we're calling ourselves the Arctic Cowboys, and we're going to be the first to kayak the entire Northwest Passage. And to it's do a little so. Bittersweet. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it is bittersweet. Uh, and, and we want to. We want to do a, a good job of pointing out the fact that it's going to quickly, much quicker than we think, become a superhighway. For, for uh, like uh, barges and, and, and other vessels, you mean? Super tankers, container super tankers, ships, yeah. container mm-hmm. ships that are you know littering other parts of the world right now. It's going to be, I mean, other than uh, you know the tip of South America and Panama Canal, this, this is a volatile route, much larger. There's no dredging. There's no violent storms. Just, just ice, and the ice is quickly going away. My goodness! And now, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about that once you complete. And that's next year, man. You're you're cranking these things out. You're getting good at this, this expedition planning. <laughs> well, well it, it it also takes money, so I spent a lot of time calling and begging for money. So, if any of your <laughs> exactly. listeners out there want to sponsor one of our endeavors, uh, we would love to talk to you. So, please give me a call or. Just go to my website, westhanson.com, and we can set it up. Can, can I ask you, what, what, what do you do uh, with the rest of your time? What do you do for a career to make these kind of things possible? I think a lot of people would be interested about that. Oh, okay. Well, I'm a, my degree is in psychology, and I'm a social worker. Uh, I'm a licensed social worker. I worked for years in the public mental health system in Texas, uh, but now I work with our family business, and we contract with home health care agencies to provide all of their social work uh, services, which includes helping people with their, their health care benefits. As you know, here in, in the United States, we have a really convoluted and, 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 and very confusing uh, spider web of, of health care coverage. And so I, mm-hmm. I do what I can to learn all about that and help people make sure that they can get their health care they need in their later years. And so that allows you uh, the ability to take time off when, when you want to do an, an experience like this and an expedition. 
I am self-employed and I have a very tolerant and supportive family. My mother, my father, my sisters, uh, cousins, uh, my nieces, my great nephews, my nephews, my daughter, my wife. Uh, I recommend people go out and get themselves a family because they are great. <laughs> I really They're pretty did. awesome, aren't they? They, they? they tolerate. My sister, Barbara, uh, she did not plan on becoming the manager of my expeditions, but about two weeks into the, the, the Amazon expedition, we found that there was that position that was desperately needed between us and the outside world. And she filled that gap. She jumped into it and she has since been the manager of all my expeditions. And she, you know, she's, uh, able enough to handle anybody and not take crap, including from me. She's had to back me down several times. If I come off the river and I'm, you know, for the day, and I, I do one of our daily satellite phone calls, and I'm cranky and I'm complaining at her. She will tell me to shut the hell up. <laughs> That's good, man. Yep. That's what you need. Yeah, I do at times. Unfortunately, I do. Yeah, I don't know if there's a better life than uh, being able to go on these adventures, enjoy it, and then come home to such a great family. You know, I, I mean, the balance between the two is just like, wow. What I, I having that experience myself and thank them every day. Well, my wife and I are getting close to uh, retirement and, and, that is, 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 and it's turning out at a really good time because at 57 years old, I'm getting a, a lot of experience behind me and we got a lot of gear so we can go pretty much everywhere. And I hope my wife and I can start doing some expeditions together. She's not water-based, so it'll have to be something on land, but she can hike me into the ground. So we want to do some exploring in the northern part of South America in the Guinea Highlands. Uh, where the Tepuis are located, all those flat top mountains you saw in um, the movie uh, Up, the little cartoon movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The highest waterfalls in the world, Angel Falls and such are located. So we want to do some exploring there and, uh, and uh, obviously some other mountain ranges around the world. So hopefully I can start doing some things with my wife that, that aren't necessarily water-based. Perfect. Awesome. And, and now you mentioned your book came out literally today. And uh, I would love for folks to... That's awesome, exciting. Congratulations. I'm sure that was, you know, an expedition in itself to write that. Oh, man. Um, at least for me, it would be because I don't, I don't like writing. <laughs> so <laughs> it takes a lot of patience. So um, where can people find out about that? And, uh, and, and, it, and it's about the expedition itself, the, the Amazon expedition. That's, that's correct. The book is entitled The Amazon From Source to Sea, The Farthest Journey Down the World's Longest River. And, and I'm the author. There's no ghost author. I had a great editor in Jeff Moog. Jeff was, is the uh, former uh, director and editor of Canoe and Kayak Magazine. And he knew all about the politics involved in my expedition uh, as it was happening. And so uh, he became a, a, an excellent editor uh, for the book and, and made me sound, uh, really do. And I had to learn to write. So that was, it's one thing turning my journal notes, you know, into something that's readable. Uh, that, that, that was a lot of work. The book is on Amazon as is, as are most books. Uh, they, they have a pretty good markup. So if you want a little bit better deal, then I would buy it directly from my website at westhanson.com. That's W E S T H A N S E N.com. Those are direct sales. It's also available on ebook uh, through Amazon. And next Monday, I start recording the Audible uh, version or the audio version of the book uh, here in Austin. So hopefully in a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, the Audible version will be ready at audible.com. 
Awesome. Yeah, well, you got a great voice, and uh, we'll have to interview again about some of these other expeditions, and so that, that'll be really entertaining. Yeah, uh, yeah, it'll be great. Especially for our listeners, because they're already used to listening to things. Uh, man, as my last question, I just want to know, you, you know, I yep. know with a lot of adventures, um, there, there's just kind of one thing that sticks out to them when they look back on their their life and what they've done. Do, do you think this Amazon journey for you is going to be kind of that that experience for you, where it's like, of everything I've done, that that thing is, I'm very proud of that. Something about it, did it have this, the, the it factor to it? Um, I'm not sure, uh, because it did, I see it as the the first step in a lot more. It, it definitely was is not the hardest thing I've ever done. Right. Uh, it was very indulgent, but one thing that I am, I'm so grateful for is that it taught me how, not just how to do an expedition, but that I could. And, and, and I really want to convey in my book and, and anytime I speak to, to groups, how close this is to just the common person, because the, I did, I did possess paddling skills. I mean, I did, I was a ultra marathon canoe racer, but that was it. Uh, I knew nothing about running an expedition. So I just read about all the other expeditions. The information is out there. People can do these things. You just need to you know, do some research, uh, plan on it, talk to people like me who have done it and, and listen to what they say. Unfortunately, there are people that, that, uh, who talked to me who, who didn't and, and they're, they're dead now. So there's, there are things to be learned from people that have gone before you and the Amazon, once again, as you, as you mentioned, it's, it's not necessarily it for me, but it definitely started it for me. Ah, that's awesome to hear. Well, I can't see, I, I can't wait to see, what else you decide to do and what else you accomplish. And uh, we'll be sure to have you back on the show at some point. I really appreciate you doing these podcasts. They're, they're wonderful to listen to. I, I, I'm on the road for you know three hours at a time, driving across Texas, and I listen to every one of them. Oh, man, that's awesome to hear. Thank you Not for that. All. My pleasure. Okay, I'll, I'll keep trying to do a good job. You're doing, I'll pay attention. <laughs> you're doing a great job, Mason. All right. Thank you, Wes. Have a great day, man. All right. You take care. All right. Bye-bye. All right, bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.